Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. He's the co-author of the book, a Catholic Guide to Depression, and I've seen him multiple times, and you may have too, in the National Catholic Register newspaper. He's going to help us understand the often life-draining and seemingly hopeless disease of depression. But first, let's look at some news articles dealing with depression. One of the things that I've identified recently was a study looking at imaging of the brain for folks who suffer from depression. It's very interesting. Depression traditionally has been something that's clinically diagnosed. The DSM-4 or 5 now is a psychiatric manual that helps us identify symptoms to provide groundwork for a diagnosis. We've never really had a good test. Nobody can do a blood test for depression. We don't have a good way to identify serotonin levels in the brain. Recently, they've been doing imaging studies with PET scans that looks at the way the brain's functioning, especially functional PET scans. And the thing that they did is they took a group of people with no depression, a group of people with depression for less than 10 years, and a group of people with depression for greater than 10 years. And the thing that they identified is that the people who have had depression for greater than 10 years had inflammation in the brain more than the group with short-term depression and way more than the group with no depression. And it looked actually very akin to diseases of the brain like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's because when the brain has inflammation like that, this is something we're still learning you know, very much about. It's new research. But when the brain has inflammation like that, it permanently changes the way that your brain functions. And so that shows the danger of undiagnosed and untreated chronic depression. So when you have inflammation in the, in the skin, in a joint, you feel it. It hurts. It's tender. It's painful. But when you have inflammation in the brain, there's no symptoms like that. It, it may be that depression is the pain of the brain, you know, your brain hurting from this, you know. But it, I was very interested to see how having symptoms of depression was correlated with this. Tom, I know you have something about the other way around, how the body you know, can affect the mind. This is this was bizarre. Okay, I'm reading my go-to journal for what I do day in and day out, removing skin cancer from patients' faces and putting it back together. It's a journal called Dermatologic Surgery. Lo and behold, in one of the final articles a few months ago, there was an article on depression. It's like, how can this be here? So the link was through Botox, botulinum, toxin, which is often used for cosmetic purposes. So people with the frowning wrinkles, you know, between the eyebrows or, or the crow's feet or, or other places around the lips. So the article was called Botox for Depression, More Than Skin Deep. So the question comes about, we know that the mind affects the body, but this article is going to suggest that the body can also affect the mind. So in multiple studies, the psychiatrist writes in the Dermatologic journal, Surgery Journal that when studied multiple times, multiple countries, 50 to 60 percent of people with depression improve after receiving Botox. And on average, there's a 50 percent reduction in their symptoms. I mean, if you had a drug that could do that, that would be a home run, at least a ground rule double. Yeah. <laughs> and one third of patients actually go into remission. So right now there are what are called phase three clinical trials going on with Botox for depression. Wow, that's incredible. And these were these people who got it for cosmetic reasons while they were depressed? Well, that doesn't some, really make sense, I guess. Well, somebody noticed that. And then they said, hmm, is there something to this? And, and what they've shown is that the Botox works even when it, if it was injected somewhere that did not necessarily improve their appearance at rest. So what did it have to do with just making facial expressions? Or? The ability to make facial expressions. So, for instance, the late 19th century psychologist and writer William James said, I do not cry because I'm sad. I'm sad because I cry. In other words, mm. the, the crying, the physical act of crying makes you feel the emotion of sadness. At least he said there. So in other words, uh, some psychiatrists are saying that both the body can affect the mind and the mind can affect the body. So if you cannot make your sad, frowny face, then you're going to be less sad, potentially. That, that is one of the things going on here. But here's something else. You were just talking about functional 
MRIs. In other words, looking at how the brain is using energy, is using, is using sugar, glucose. And what they've shown that in non-depressed cosmetic patients, that there was less negative feedback from the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is a little fear center in the middle of the brain that, you know, gives us anxiety, makes us feel fear. But if you had received Botox, even if it wasn't for cosmetic reasons, you had less feedback. In other words, you were less likely to fear, feel fear or anger or anxiety. And there was actually some changes in the axons, which are the, the long segment of a nerve cell leading away to another nerve cell. So the Botox somehow even affected the nerve cells. So right now they're trying to figure out, is this another medical versus cosmetic use for Botox? Man, that would be incredible. Yeah, that you know, there's so many ways that we try and treat depression. I think we'll discuss some of those with our primary guest today. But that, you know, 50% improvement, that would rank near the top of effectiveness, I'd say. Oh, yes. But you have a non-pharmacologic aid to depression. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that probably there's so many people that suffer from depression. Depending on your demographic stage in life, some of our listeners may be suffering from depression now. And one of the things that I like to recommend to <laughs> our listeners is a way that you can try and improve your, your outlook and improve your mental health without any medicine, without even before you go and see a physician. The thing that I like to recommend to people is gratitude also known as thankfulness. And this is something that, for people of faith, I think comes easier because we we believe that everything that we have has been given to us, you know. And the thing that they've shown in multiple studies, especially the, the one that I was looking at uh, most recently was from the journal Psychiatry, multiple studies have shown that the increase in gratitude that people think about, act on, or talk about, the more that gratitude is on your mind, the less depressed you are. Depression is frequently identified and described as a, a disease of looking inward and, you know, the, the inability to look outward. Some of the things that I recommend to folks are keeping a gratitude journal. I recommend this to all of my patients with depression, but also anxiety, is at the end of the day, write down three things that you're grateful for just as long as they're not the same three things every day. You don't even have to share it with anybody, but just the act of thinking about three things that I'm grateful for. That in itself lifts your eyes outward from, from kind of gazing inward at things that may be very real and very terrible in your life. One other way of, of acting on gratitude is writing a, a thank you note to someone. Could be for a gift, could be a mentor that you had in school or, or throughout your life, a friend, when, when in a time of need they were there for you, writing a thank you note also improves depression. And then lastly, meditating or for faith-based people, we call that praying, on things that have been given to you. Praying and meditating on gratitude and being thankful for everything. As Bing Crosby said, count your blessings instead of sheep, <laughs> you know. But this is actually something you can positively do. It's free. And for people with mild symptoms, I think that may be more effective than medicine. I like reading books on positive psychology, how, how to improve your life and other people's lives. And what Andrew's talking about with gratitude is actually one of the books on how to be happier. That's one of the key things that works. So even if you're not depressed, you're probably going to have more joy in life, more happiness in life if you do this very active being thankful for three things. And they can be the smallest little things, but it's something good because we all give into this... Oh, how do you put it? You get used to a certain level of happiness. Everybody gets there after a while. So big events, you might be happier for a while, but then it comes back down to a baseline. And the, one of the only ways to get above baseline is the acts of gratitude. There are other ways that books talk about, but that is one of the tried and true ways that works. Well, I'm excited to hear from, from our main guest today, and we're going to introduce him right after Tom's trivia question. And here it is. Again, sticking with our topic of depression, did you know that there is one medical diagnosis that half of patients with depression also have? What is this diagnosis that unfortunately patients with depression have too? After 
the third segment of the show at the beginning of the fourth. We'll have the answer, but we'll be back with our guest after the break on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. We have with us today our guest, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine. He's not only a psychiatrist, he also is the director of the medical ethics program there. And he's the co-author with Monsignor John Syack of the Catholic Guide to Depression, which is available both as a book and to listen to on audible.com. Dr. Cariotti, Aaron, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, simple question. What is depression, and are there more than one kind? Well, when you say the word depression, which is a word people often use in casual conversation, sometimes folks can mistakenly believe that depression is just going through a rough patch in life or you know, having a tough spell or a bad day where you're, you're feeling sort of down or, or you have the blues. But when physicians or psychiatrists use the word, we're describing a clinical syndrome and uh, uh, an illness that can be actually quite severe and quite impairing. And it certainly affects one's emotional state. So uh, chronic or pervasive feelings of sadness can certainly be a core feature of depression. But depression can also involve an experience of emotional numbness. It can involve, in some uh, cases, anger or irritability. And so the emotional component is just one aspect of depression because depression is an illness that actually affects all areas of our mental and biological functioning. So it, it impacts our mood and our emotional state, but it also impairs our ability to think and to concentrate and focus. So someone who has, a let's say, a moderate or severe episode of depression may describe difficulties in engaging in ordinary tasks like reading or having a conversation. You know, I read the same paragraph five times, and I just... I couldn't recall or remember anything that I just read would be a common sort of experience. Sounds like medical school study. Depression. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Or if you, you know, you pull a few all-nighters, you'll get a little taste of what that yes. might be like. Um, it impairs a person's level of physical energy. So just feeling uh, physically exhausted all the time, uh, difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. It impacts our sleep-wake cycle, what doctors call the circadian rhythm of, of normal sleep and wakefulness is typically impaired with depression. So very often insomnia, the, the inability to fall asleep or to stay asleep is a characteristic feature. Uh, very common for people with depression to wake up early in the morning, three, four o'clock in the morning, not be able to fall back asleep, even though they're feeling exhausted. So their, their sleep is impaired. Their concentration and energy are diminished. And, uh, by, you know, depression also... Uh, impacts our ability to perceive and, and process the world in a way that's balanced. And so people can get into a downward spiral with depression of having just pervasive negative thoughts about themselves and about the world and about the future. And this can lead in people who wouldn't ordinarily consider something like this. This can lead people, if it goes on long enough, to start thinking that their situation is hopeless, to start feeling like I'm suffering so much uh, that I can't take it anymore. And so sad to say, uh, depression is an illness that can have high rates of mortality through, through suicide, through self-inflicted harm and self-inflicted violence. So untreated depression is a very strong and serious risk factor for suicide. And so I think when we frame depression in that way and we, when we understand it in that way, we see that it is a it is serious and unfortunately all too common um, medical illness that can severely impair a person's functioning in the way that, that other uh, severe medical illnesses can get in the way of someone's ordinary daily functioning. And if it goes untreated, can uh, can have a really tragic outcome of actually leading someone to to take their own life. So that that's an answer to your to your first question. The second question about types of depression um, is that uh, the first thing to say is that there are multiple kinds of depression. Uh, you can have 
depression that's part of what we call major depressive disorder, which is more or less what I just described. Yes. But you can also have depression as part of an illness called bipolar disorder, what used to be called manic depressive illness, where the depression alternates with cycles of mania, where the person has intense energy, racing thoughts, uh, diminished need for sleep. Uh, they can be very distractible. They can be impulsive and, and engage in risk-taking, uh, you know, ill-advised risk-taking behavior and so forth. So that's, a, that's another serious illness that's important um, when you have an episode of depression to get a good uh, medical or psychiatric assessment to make sure that uh, that you understand the type of depression that you're dealing with because um, the treatment for bipolar disorder can look very different from the medical treatment for depression. And in fact, if you try to treat someone with bipolar disorder with conventional antidepressants rather than with mood-stabilizing medications, you can take someone with bipolar depression and actually trigger a manic episode or a mixed huh. episode where they have symptoms of depression and mania at the same time. So, so it is important if, if someone is dealing with depression uh, to make sure that they seek some professional help and in, in a, a careful assessment to understand the nature and the cause of their depression and to distinguish it from other psychiatric syndromes or, or mental illnesses or other medical conditions. Uh, that can present with symptoms that look a lot like depression. You know, Aaron, what, one of the things that I see a lot in practice is that people come in with a number of symptoms. Usually they don't assume it's depression. They assume it's something else. Right. Thyroid is a common scapegoat. Um, how, you know, in introducing this idea that it could be depression, I am met with people saying, no, no, it, it can't be that. It's definitely not that. It's something else. You know, and I, I think it, it's kind of speaking towards the stigma that we're, we're familiar with. You know, the idea that maybe, you know, many people feel that being depressed is a sign of a personal failing or weakness. How did this stigma come about? Why is it there? How do we get rid of it? Yeah, so that's a very, thank you for bringing that up. That's a very important question. And I have had the very same experience uh, in terms of the stigma of mental illness that patients face. And if for one reason or another, they feel it's more socially acceptable to get a diagnosis of low thyroid and <laughs> take thyroid replacement hormone than to get a diagnosis of depression and take an antidepressant medication or engage in some sort of therapy for the depression. I think that's, that's very unfortunate. I think uh, there are a, a lot of reasons why historically people with mental illness were stigmatized. In large part, that was because until fairly recently, we did not have a lot of good treatments for these illnesses and in their more severe forms. They, they could lead, uh, mental illness could lead to behaviors that people uh, found to be um, worrisome or unusual. And so I think someone who's struggling with something like depression, which is going to be a very common illness, uh, is afraid that if they're given that label or if it's known by the family and friends that they have sought treatment from a psychiatrist, other people are going to put them in some sort of box and assume that they are either quote-unquote crazy, uh, which is a, a terrible term that is applied to individuals, even individuals with severe uh, and persistent mental illness should not get a label like that. Uh, but also for, for the reason that you mentioned, that there is this unfortunate assumption that depression or a, a clinically significant anxiety disorder is the result of some character defect or some personal weakness, or for a person of faith, the, the mistaken assumption that this is somehow the result of um, uh, a sinful behavior or it's a sign of weakness of faith. If only I trusted God more, then I wouldn't be suffering from this illness. And I think based on what we know about the causes of depression, the fact that there are very significant biological components to these illnesses. There are, there are genes that can put a person at risk for developing depression or anxiety, that we need to understand these illnesses in the same way that we understand other medical illnesses and to try to get away from that social stigma that suggests that suffering from depression is a sign of weakness. One of the things I mentioned in the 
in the book, uh, my book on depression that was written specifically for a Catholic audience, is that there were many uh, saints and people of very strong character who suffered from depression or other forms of mental illness. Yeah, we don't hear that. That's a good we don't thing hear that up. very often, but but uh, but it's true, and I give a I give a few examples in the book of that of, of people of strong faith and, and strong character. Um, in in the latter category, you could put someone like a- Abraham Lincoln. Oh yes. I think no one who knows anything about President Lincoln would accuse him of being a man of weak character. Quite, quite the contrary, but it's also very well known that he suffered from profound. Uh, episodes and bouts of what at the time was termed melancholy or melancholia, and and now would be understood as depression. So that's one example from uh, from our own uh, our own American history. One of the great figures uh, in American history who dealt with uh, a, a severe and recurrent mental illness that that at times really Im- impaired his ability to function, and he had to struggle through that. Aaron, um, I, I would like to go back. You've brought up so many ideas here. I'd like, I think our listeners would like to lo- know more about. The first thing that comes to my mind is, where does depression come from? Does it come from outside of us, inside of us? Is it the genes that are related to the you know, nerve pathways in our brains? Is it disordered emotions or feelings? What's the genesis, the beginning, at least of the, you know, the kind of depression you're talking about now? So the answer is yes <laughs> to, to all of those things. So de- depression is a complex illness that involves biological, psychological, social, and sometimes implicates spiritual factors as well. And so some people come into the world with a genetic predisposition to respond to, let's say, a stressful environment by developing depressive symptoms. Other people respond to stress perhaps in different ways, maybe with anxiety, maybe with headaches, maybe with, uh, maybe they respond to stress by engaging in sort of compulsive type A uh, workaholic activity, right? There, there's all kinds of all kinds of different temperamental dispositions. And some people are going to have an innate, you know, genetic temperamental disposition to develop depression under situations of, of stress or loss. Very common for folks with depression to have experienced early childhood loss and in some cases childhood trauma, hmm. although that's certainly not the case for everyone with depression. So, you know, people that had, that had a a loving family, a solid upbringing, a you know, very healthy sort of family of origin situation, does that mean that they're going to be immune uh, later in life from developing depression? Certainly not, not necessarily. Uh, other factors, other situations in life can contribute to uh, the development of depression. Uh, but we see commonly in individuals with depression, early childhood loss, trauma, uh, difficulties sometimes in relationships, a lack of, a lack in some cases of connection and support from other people, and that that's a growing problem in society that perhaps we can talk about later in the show. The, the whole issue yes, of absolutely. of loneliness, right? And um, it, d- depression can be influenced by and can influence our spiritual life. So you can imagine. Uh, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of someone who is experiencing the symptoms that I described at the beginning of the show. Well, in that kind of condition, prayer, a sense of God's loving presence, is going to be something that may be very difficult or that, uh, that may be clouded. So depression can uh, impair someone's ability to feel uh, the presence of God or to engage in prayer, and as a consequence, they they can go through periods of of dif- difficulties and spiritual trials as a result of their depression, which in turn can contribute to the depression itself. So, I suggested you know a few minutes ago that depression is not the result or a consequence necessarily of having a weak faith. On the other hand, we we do know, and there's an there's a growing and pretty interesting body of medical research suggesting that the practices related to faith, uh, participation in a religious community, engagement in prayer and the sacraments, can help people recover 
from an episode of depression. They're not a replacement for medical therapies and they're not a substitute for uh, psychotherapy, but they can aid in a person's recovery and that they can, they can reduce the risk of a person relapsing into an episode of depression. So while, while depression isn't necessarily um, a sign of a spiritual crisis, uh, and it's not necessarily the sign of, of, of a lack of virtue or a lack of faith. Uh, on the other hand, growth in virtue, the virtues uh, associated with uh, the practice of the faith, gratitude, uh, friendship with God, uh, engagement in a religious community, these are things that can help individuals that struggle with depression to recover and to lower their risk of recurrence. Aaron, we need to take a break now. I want to follow up with some of the points you made just after we come back for another portion of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association, and we're coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio with Dr. Aaron Cariardi. And Aaron, I wanted to ask you, you know, you wrote in First Things that depression is a response to a toxic environment. What, is that, what does that mean, and how do we fix it? So th- this is a very important issue because we are seeing rising rates of depression and a related problem, which is anxiety, in, uh, in our society today. And related to that, we are seeing rising rates of of suicide and so-called deaths of despair, death by suicide or by drug overdose or by alcohol-related illnesses. And so these upward trends in depression and anxiety, in death by suicide and, and substance use, raise, especially among young people, raise the, I think, the important question about what's going on to contribute to this. We mentioned earlier in the show that depression and anxiety certainly have genetic factors that contribute to them. But we know that in the last 15 years in the United States, our genes have not changed, right? And so <laughs> our genetic endowment right. has, not, has not evolved over that short period of time. So, so something must be contributing to this. And I think the answer to the question of, you know, what is that is complicated. But one of the things that we, we certainly need to be paying attention to is the issue of loneliness, we, we seem to be in a society, in a culture in which people are becoming increasingly isolated. And what social scientists refer to as social capital, those, those real tangible bonds between one person and another, friendships, close family relationships, getting together with people for social events like picnics and barbecues and um, and other you know, religious-related gatherings, we've seen over the last couple of generations a, a sharp decline in those things among Americans. So that back in, back in the 1980s, if you asked uh, people in the United States, do you have someone in your life with whom you can discuss important matters, which is a good, good proxy, a good question to get, get at the issue of loneliness, 20% of Americans in the 1980s answered no to that question, saying, I don't have anyone in my life, a family member, a friend, a colleague, with whom I can discuss important things. If you ask people that question today, uh, the number of people who respond yes has doubled. So 40% of Americans today now say that they have no, no one, in the, which is an astonishing sort of thing. And that's, that's just one data point. Uh, that has been replicated in many other studies suggesting that we're seeing a growing epidemic of loneliness in the United States and, and Britain and other, other Western countries. And this is going hand-in-hand hand with the rise of social media. So people have more and more, uh, quote-unquote, friends on Facebook or Instagram or other social media platforms. They have these tenuous connections to other people online. But those connections are not an adequate substitute for the, the real and tangible uh, connections that we need to, uh, to have with people face-to-face. So how do we right? do this in the Internet, smartphone, Instagram age? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult challenge. And the first thing that we need to do, I think, is take some steps to limit our screen time. Uh, this is especially important, I think, for young people. Uh, there is 
there's been a lot of research in the last 10 years on the effects of screen time on adolescent mental health, adolescent depression, and anxiety and suicide. Uh, Gene Twenge uh, down yes. at, uh, at San Diego has done a lot of this work, very important work. And what we see is there's a pretty direct linear relationship between screen time for adolescents and poor mental health outcomes. Right? So I think the first step is for parents and teachers and, and youth organizations and coaches to, to begin setting a framework for young people that will help them to put away their smartphones, right? To turn off the smartphone or to substitute the, the old-fashioned flip phone for a smartphone. So what do you and do with your boys? Uh, well, we there's, there's we pay zinger. very very yeah. close attention to screen time, and uh, you know our high school boys uh, didn't get didn't get the smartphone until they were they were seniors, right? The freshman has an old fashioned flip phone, right? Good and so you. he has to pick up the phone and, and call his friends, and um, and it, many teenagers, if if you suggest something like this, will will respond that that somehow they're going to miss out, right? This is just how young people communicate. Yes. It's, it's what some people have called FOMO, FOMO. the fear of missing out. Yes. Right? Um, well, it turns out that in our experience with our own children, with others that we, other families that we've seen, right, if you, restrict, if you restrict screen time, uh, not only do young people not miss out, but quite the contrary, yes. they learn how to have a meaningful telephone conversation. They learn how to engage, get together and engage with their friends face-to-face rather than just lying in bed until the wee hours of the morning uh, texting or Instagramming or tweeting or whatever back and, back and forth. Uh, and so it is, it is possible to do this, and when you do this, uh, you, you, actually, you actually improve the outcomes for young people in terms of their ability to connect with and to relate to other people. And, um, and I think you diminish the loneliness and isolation that screen time and other factors in, in our society, just the, the, the pace, the demands that are placed upon people professionally, um, make it very difficult to have that family dinner together to uh, to get together with friends in in a you know in, in a meaningful way uh with face to face time to to connect with people this this is becoming increasingly more difficult but if we're intentional about it and if we take a hard look at the way in which we're engaging with technology and, and ask, you know, are we masters of this technology or is this technology mastering, mastering us and controlling yes. us, then I think we can begin to get a handle on this problem and, and begin to make some real headway. You know, Aaron, one thing I'd like to go back to uh, that you had mentioned previously about comorbidities and other things that we see with depression. You mentioned the technology and the screen time. You also mentioned substance abuse. And in, in dealing with patients, I'm a family doctor here, you know, one of the things I see is a lot of people with depression and other mental illness, and they, they overuse substances, especially alcohol. Right. right. Do you see people get better in a depressive situation like that or without giving up the substance abuse, or do they almost have to overcome the substance abuse to become not depressed? There are some situations in which the substance use is downstream of the depression, and if you adequately treat the depression, the person no longer feels the need to self-medicate with other drugs of abuse or recreational drugs. I have seen that happen, but I would say that's usually the exception. Once a person develops a substance use habit, even if the depression came first, the substance use after a while can begin to take on a life of its own and it have its own kind of momentum. And, and many, of these, many of these substances are habit-forming and, and addictive. And so for most people, most of the time, when you have those two things going hand in hand, depression and misuse of alcohol or use of recreational drugs or misuse of prescription drugs, then you've got to deal with both. You've got to take a both-and approach, and you've got to help them get a handle on the, on the substance use, interrupt that behavior, and treat the depression. If you don't treat the depression, it's going to be harder for them to get sober and to stay clean. But also, if you don't address the substance use, 
it's going to be much more difficult to t- treat the depression. So if you're giving someone an antidepressant or engaging in psychotherapy or other interventions for depression and the person is misusing or abusing alcohol at the same time, the alcohol itself is a, is a depressant and it's going to make the antidepressant medication less effective. You know, cause... So those are... Those are cases in which you, you kind of want to take a both-and approach and deal with both both issues. One of the things that I think, you know, definitely resonates with me and probably a great deal of our listeners is, say we've identified, you know, either that the person has shared it with us or we've identified that they have a problem with depression. They don't want to get help. How do you How do you force someone to get help, especially given the stigma, given comorbidities, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I struggle with when we all agree what the situation sure. is, but they, you know, they want to be better, but they don't want to go to, to therapy. They don't want yeah. to take medicine. They don't want to stop drinking. How, how can we help them to want that? Well, the first thing that I would say, and, and this is in relation to, especially in relation to something like drinking or substance use disorder, is that well-meaning families can sometimes um, enable bad behavior or, or maladaptive behavior or, or substance use by trying to shield the person from the natural consequences of their own behavior. See, the first thing is you don't want to do that, right? If someone, as a result of their drinking, is, um, is having academic problems or having work-related problems, family members should not try to reach in and rescue them from that, right? Tough love is, is, is the better response at that point uh, because maybe what the person needs to do is to bump up against reality and see that, you know, continuing to engage in this kind of behavior uh, is untenable. This is not going to work. This is, this is going to cause me uh, health-related difficulties or legal difficulties or, or school or work-related difficulties. When it comes to the issue of, of getting help, I actually think primary care physicians are often very well positioned because there's, there's less stigma for someone to go see their family doctor or an internist uh, about a mental health problem than there is to, to go see the psychiatrist, the specialist. So I actually encourage my colleagues in primary care to get educated on at least at least the basics of treatment for these illnesses because they're, they're the ones who are on the, on the front lines. Of this, and they may, they may be the the only physician that the person is willing to encounter in dealing with this. I think for non-professionals, family members and friends, if you have gone through an experience like this yourself, share that with others. Right. One of the best ways to destigmatize something like depression is to hear from a loved one that I've gone through something like this. Maybe it's not the exact same issue that you're dealing with. Maybe you struggle with depression and I struggle with anxiety or I had a period in life where, where I developed panic attacks and had to take a medication or go, go see a therapist for some sessions to deal with that. Just simply being willing to disclose that um, to, uh, to a loved one, to a family member, a friend, a colleague at work can go a long way toward normalizing and destigmatizing the experience of something like this. So I think, I think people who have suffered from depression and have seen their way through it are probably the best resource for helping other people to get over that initial hump of the stigma. Um, that's why, again, in, in, in when I write about this and when I speak about this, I like to cite examples of uh, admirable uh, people, tre- you know, tremendous individuals in our, in our history or in the history of the church, uh, great saints and heroes who have suffered from depression, to, to show people that they're not alone in this, to show people that there's no reason to be ashamed of having to deal with something like this. Aaron, thank you. We're going to take a break before we go into the final segment of the show and continue on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. This is Dr. Doctor returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and everyone has been anxiously awaiting Tom's medical trivia answer. Yes, well, the question, half of patients with depression also have this medical diagnosis. What is it? We've been talking about it during this show, and if you thought the answer is anxiety, 
You're correct. In fact, Aaron says it might even be more than half. Aaron, what, what is the link, if any, between anxiety and depression? Right. So it's well known now, and thank you for bringing this up. This is very important because we often talk about anxiety and depression as distinct problems or distinct phenomena, and they certainly can be. Individuals can suffer with depression without symptoms of anxiety and vice versa. But more often than not, um, half the time or probably even more than half the time, these two problems tend to go hand in hand. So someone with a clinically significant depression will also very often have clinically significant symptoms of anxiety. And there seem to be underlying biological roots of both problems that are shared in common. So we know that one of the mainstays of treatment for depression involves raising levels of serotonin with with medications that target that particular uh, chemical neurotransmitter in the brain. And it turns out that medications that elevate levels of serotonin in the brain not only work effectively to treat depression, but they also work effectively to treat anxiety. Yes. And so that, suge- that, that is one piece of evidence, and there are others as well, that suggest that depression and anxiety probably have common underlying biological roots. And for some people, their experience of these two things can alternate. So they may go through a spell or a period where symptoms of depression and withdrawal tend to predominate. And then that may be followed by, or that may alternate with periods in which the depression symptoms improve a bit, but then they're struggling with anxiety. And so the the good news is that the treatments that focus on depression, whether it's medication treatments or psychotherapy uh, treatments like cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy, can very often be effective for both problems. So just as depression and anxiety can go hand-in-hand in in terms of someone's someone's diagnosis or their experience of these two things, also the the treatment for both can overlap, and one medication in some cases may be effective to treat both the symptoms of depression and the symptoms of anxiety for someone who's contending with both of those problems. Excellent. That's very practical. And I have another practical question because many of us in our day-to-day life will come in contact with patients or people, friends, family members who are depressed. And it's depressing for us to be around them. And the natural reaction is to walk the other way. What can we do when we have that initial emotional reaction to someone with depression that would be a better response? So that's, this is a real challenge, but it's very important, I think, for people to understand the value of just being present to someone who is suffering. It's probably not the case, and I, the same is true of me as a treating physician sure. and a psychotherapist. If I see someone for an initial evaluation who's dealing with depression, um, one of the one of the things that is going to suggest to me that they may be dealing with depression is my own empathic attunement ah. uh, to them is, you know, that my, I'll use my own emotional state to yes. kind of gauge their emotional state, and that can be diagnostically useful. And, and if you are wow. around someone who's depressed uh, and you engage with them for a significant period of time, you're going to start feeling down. Yes. And that is difficult, and that is painful. And that, as you said, that can sometimes... Uh, trigger the impulse to try to uh, to want to, to withdraw from that person, right? Or the or the other impulse is to want to figure out what can I do in the here and now yes. just to fix this and just to make this better. And the fact is, treatment for depression is uh, is possible. This is an illness that that in almost every case can be can be treated, and the person can recover. And so it's very important to keep that in mind. But the treatments don't work right away. So antidepressant medications take three to four weeks to take effect. And then after that, you may need to adjust the dose or you may need to augment them with a a second medication. Uh, Psychotherapy doesn't work to treat depression in the first session. It may take eight, 10, 12 sessions to adequately treat an episode of depression with psychotherapy. So there's, there's probably nothing that I can say to the person today that's going to make them feel better. And so I need to resist that impulse to, to fix them or to rescue them 
here and now in the moment. And I need to I need to ask for the strength to remain present with them and to let them know that I that I see that you're suffering, that I, I'm sorry that you're suffering, but I am here for you, and I'm not going to give you I'm not going to attempt to give you a, a, a trite piece of advice or sort of hallmark greeting card words of consolation that that you know are going to fail to fix the depression and probably make it worse because you know because they sort of trivialize the person's pain but i'm going to remain here with you and i'm going to let you know that i'm praying for you that i care about you that if you need anything i'm here for you and the other thing that that people can do is to offer hope right so in that first session that i have with a patient i may acknowledge there's nothing that i can do to make you feel better today and whatever treatments I'm going to offer are going to take some time, weeks to maybe even a few months to work. But what I can tell you is that I've seen and treated many other people that are suffering in the way that you're suffering. So you're not alone. Treatments are available for this. And I am willing, if you're willing to stick with treatment, I am willing to do what it takes to find something that works for you and to walk with you through that process and so to give to give the person a sense of hope right not uh, not to uh, not to dismiss their problem uh, not to you know pretend like I can wave a magic wand and make it go away today or tomorrow but to say that things are going to get better they can get better and will get better and I want to be a part of that process of helping you recover from this. That can be that can be tremendous for people. And I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show the whole issue of of suicide risk with depression. And uh, if we look at the risk factors for suicide, we don't have time to get into all of that in today's show, but uh, if we look at the risk factors for suicide, it turns out the strongest predictor of suicide is not the severity of a person's symptoms or, or how much physical pain they're in. Um, it's not how rich or poor they are. Uh, it turns out the most the most predictive factor is their sense of hopelessness. Right. Right. So Absolutely. so people can endure a lot if they believe that there is hope for me. If they believe that yes, I'm suffering now. And yes, it's very painful now, but things can get better. That thread of hope can be the thing that pulls them through that episode of depression and prevents them from going down the tragic road of self-inflicted harm or the, the tragic road of trying to trying to end their own life because they feel that their situation is hopeless. And I, I think that's where that's where that I'll call it a ministry of presence is very important to to sustain people and to give them a sense of hope. Just solidarity with them in their pain is. Um, is difficult. Right? It's hard. Yes. It's going to cost you something. It, it might be a little bit emotionally exhausting for you, but uh, I think there's tremendous value in that for the person who's suffering from depression. You know, Aaron, in trying to restore this this sense of hope and hopefulness, you had mentioned a couple kind of pillars of therapy. We've got medications. We've got um, psychological therapy. What role is there, you know, on this show we talk about general healthy living advice, regular exercise, good sleep, balanced diet, avoid alcohol, and use only in moderation. What role does that have in the treatment of depression? The things that you just mentioned have a, I think, key and central role in the treatment of depression. So if you look at depression from a behavioral perspective, depression can become a kind of addiction to withdrawal or a kind of a phobia of energy expenditure. You know, I, I, I feel drained. I feel exhausted. I feel like I have very little gas left in the tank. <laughs> so I'm just going to conserve the little that I have by by not getting out of bed, right, and by not, not, not pushing myself. And that actually contributes to the downward spiral of depression. So there's this strange paradox in depression um, that's sort of like what our Lord said, right? He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, he, the, per, the person with depression who feels drained actually has to expend the little energy that they have in order to replenish their energy. And so uh, therapy is aimed at what we call behavioral activation, just getting the person going, right? Getting them, maybe, maybe it's too much for them to go to the gym today, but they can do a few, 
they could do a few laps around the block, right? They can they can push themselves into a little more physical activity and slowly begin to so to do regain something. Build, start, do something. Start small. So yes. Start small. Do what you can. Build from there. Exercise turns out to be very therapeutically beneficial in depression, especially mild to moderate depression. More severe forms of depression, you probably need medication and other treatment to, to get you to the point where you can engage in something Aaron, like we that. have 30 seconds. Could you tell us how people can get a hold of your book? So the Catholic Guide to Depression is available from Sophia Institute Press on their website. It's available at Amazon.com. It's available at other Catholic booksellers. Uh, you can download you can download it on the Kindle or other ebooks, and you can find it on Audible and uh, listen to it on audiobooks. So lots of ways to access it. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor today. Thank you to our listeners for being with us on the radio or on the podcast. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. Please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing Deaths of Despair with the mentee of Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Francie Broghammer. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.